Welcome to this week's installment of Keeping Track. My guest is celebrating two 10-year anniversaries in 2023. His long-standing radio show, Cosmosis, which started on UCC Campus Radio back in 2013, turns 10 this year. It switched to Dublin Digital Radio in 2017 and has become a go-to show for music purveyors looking for rare gems and pieces of interest from everywhere and anywhere. If you've been a regular on the said with air quotes alternative music scene in Cork, you will undoubtedly have stumbled upon one of his DJ sets at the Ping Pong Club Nights, which began upstairs in Clancy's and toured around the city to places like Unreal Darragan and the Roundy. He has also been a teacher on American and contemporary literature film and culture and dystopian fiction at University College Cork but we are mostly here today to talk about his incredible achievement as a published author of an academic book that looks at the aftermath of the Cold War zeitgeist on fiction, film and television. The book which also turns 10 this year is entitled In the Shadow of the Bomb, The Legacy of the Cold War in Dr. Strangelove, Endzone, Crash and The Wire. He has also put together an excellent playlist to accompany our chat today. Ladies and gentlemen, the Limerick man who proves that being super smart is super cool. It is the unmistakable Niall Heffernan. Hello everybody. Thanks a million for asking me Dave. The last sentence makes me blush there but uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah. Um, so I guess we'll just fire right into it with the first track, which is Galaxy 500, the 4th of July. Just to give a little bit of background with that, I think it was the summer of 96. I hotwired my brain, basically, and, and that summer I just left home. My brain was full of junk and dead ends and uh, needed a jolt. This was one of the, the remapping tools. It was like nothing I'd ever heard before, sort of very, what's the word? Not corporeal, but uh, kind of like very, very in your head kind of music. So it kind of washed over me glorious like a sort of like floating in a benign lukewarm sea and squinting at a bright sun through your fingers making little flower of petal filaments in the refractions through your your outstretched palm
That was 4th of July by Galaxy 500, and that was picked today by my guest, Niall Heffernan. Before we look closer at your book, can you tell us a bit about your academic background and maybe your personal interests that set you on your path to writing a book about the legacy of the Cold War in fiction, film and television? Yeah, no problem. If I was to give an overview of my academic career, it would be that it started extremely slowly and then peaked 10 years ago. Basically, uh, I wasn't I wasn't great in school. I suppose I always uh, liked English and had some kind of aptitude for it, I suppose, uh, but not much else. And, you know, the usual kind of teenage stuff like no self-confidence and, you know, whatever other kind of crap goes on with uh, with the person. And I got a very average leaving search. That's probably being kind, to be honest to myself. But um, I went back to college then as a mature student uh, when I was 23, which is the minimum age you can be to go back as a mature student. I had had a couple of um, grotesque factory jobs and other things like that in the meantime that's not worth getting into here anyway. So yeah, I did a degree in UCG, chose English and philosophy as the two uh, subjects of choice and I got a slightly above average degree. And, uh, (laughs) you know, the graph was trending upwards. And then I applied for a taught master's here in UCC in film literature and television. It's something along those lines. Anyway, I'm not sure if that's the correct order. And Gwenda Young and Lee Jenkins were two of the the, the, the lecturers and supervisors doing that master's. Yeah, I really liked it. And I did my master's on Grizzly Man by Werner Herzog, the man who goes into the Alaskan wilderness to mess with bears, basically. So I really liked that. I got a big kick out of research in Herzog. And it was a 15,000 word thesis, which seemed like a lot at the time, but it really wasn't. I got a first in the, in the thesis. And I think I got a first in one of the essays previous to that as well. And they were the first firsts that I'd ever gotten in (laughs) in academia. So I was like, all right, this is different if you actually concentrate and take your time and do something that you're interested in. Somebody else might think it's reasonably worthwhile. I skipped a couple of years, fast forward, seen missing Homer Simpson style. And then I came back to do, I applied for a PhD with Gwenda and she approved it. So I spent the first, I think, year of the PhD writing absolute trash and going around in circles and not having a clue what I was doing. And then uh, something kind of clicked, basically. And I think a couple of documentaries that I'd watched at the time, The Trap by Adam Curtis being one of them. And I think I was watching The Wire around that time as well. And some kind of penny dropped at that point. And so I got into that then. But yeah, I was flying into that pretty blind as well because I didn't know what I was doing. But, you know. That's that's kind of that was part of the fun of it anyway. The seed of the book. When did that come about? It was originally the PhD thesis. So when you applied for your PhD, you knew that this is, this is going to be open at the end of it. No, not no. A, not a clue. No. So I di- I did it and post Cold War fiction or, or academia. I don't know what it's like now because I'm out I'm out of the game, yo. But it was thin enough on the ground at the time. It was very hard to find um, contemporary academics who'd written about it. Like so, I just kind of fired into it and I ended up with two supervisors. Gwenda was looking after the film side of things and Alan Gibbs was looking after the literature side of things. They found a supervisor called Daniel Grossom and he did the Viva. And when I finished the Viva, he said, have you thought about trying to publish it? And I said, no, absolutely not. And he said, it's not far off being publishable. So I was going, all right, okay, cool. So I thought about that for a while and then I said, Grant, try and publish it and see what happens. Mind you, like the, the publishers are, they're a little bit more a quantity over quality. 
to be totally honest. <laughs> I didn't um, I didn't put enough research into publishing it in the way that it would get to the most people. But anyway. Now give us a tune there. Yeah, Silent Kid by Pavement. I bought this on cassette when I was, oh, I think, about 16. I was coming out of, well, I wasn't actually coming out of it. I was still in my Nirvana phase, an angry little whelp, you know. Yeah, it was totally different to the other stuff that I'd listened to or been listening to up at that point. And I kind of couldn't make sense of it at the time, but I loved it. So it makes a little bit more sense now over thousands of listens and, and nearly 30 years. But, you know, you can still remember the magic.
That was Silent Kit by Pavement, and that was picked today by my guest, Niall Heffernan. Niall is the author of the book In the Shadow of the Bomb, which we were discussing today. So to set the book up, there are some recurring themes and terms that I'd like you to explain before we get into the book itself. No problem. Firstly, could you briefly give us your interpretation of the Cold War? Yeah, so I'll give you the interpretation that I posit in the book, I suppose, just to make sure that nobody thinks that I'm an expert on the Cold War, because I'm certainly not. I'm looking at it specifically or exclusively from the side of the US point of view, and and even at that it's like a very specific framework. I I guess there there were definitely really dangerous moments in the Cold War, like the Cuban Missile Crisis and things like that, obviously, where things kind of came to a head and there was a real danger that nuclear war might actually happen. But what I read about the Cold War from the US side was that it was an almost technical exercise. In an overall sense, it was kind of a jousting match between two superpowers to decide uh, which variation of Western technocracy and ideology was best. You know, communism, capitalism, whatever. Uh, and as it turns out, the US, with its almost limitless supply of money and resources, won out. And so communism was defeated and capitalism, at the end of history, as Francis Fukuyama put it, became unencumbered. It was the, the right and natural way of the world. So yeah, I mean, it, that's what it was. It was a technical exercise where it wasn't a physical war. It was like a demonstration of the power of each state, I guess. Another term I'd like you to explain is game theory. Oh yeah, that old chestnut. So again, <laughs> game theory is a mathematical the mathematical theory and maths are generally none of my business. Uh, so again, <laughs> not, not an expert. But uh, yeah, I did plenty of reading around it and a lot of people think that Adam Curtis is a quack. I'm kind of conscious that even mentioning his name will send people off that guy or whatever (laughs) or just stop listening to what I'm saying but at the very least Curtis has a lot of the actual people that were involved in this period of history uh, speaking about what they were doing so at the very least you can take their direct quotations and you can work with that and there's some other really excellent books about it as well that I that I looked into while you know not really understanding the, the formula obviously you know getting a good overview of it so basically it's the maths of individual choice and it's basically says that ra- the rational choice is always what is in an individual's best interest so very very complicated formulations of game theory were used to manage the US arsenal with this as a premise And simply put, it stated that arming to the teeth with nukes meant that it would be irrational of the USSR to launch an attack on the US, as it would mean their own certain destruction. So that's, they were doing what was uh, best for them individually and individually as collective or whatever. And since capitalism won the clash of the ideological titans when the USSR collapsed, game theory models have subsequently spread all over the world, basically, I guess, the West, the technocratic West. And now... Game theoretical models are pretty much the de facto framework for running institutions around the world. We've all experienced one strand of game theory, which would be performance targets. And that's stats targets, basically, you know, teachers, nurses, doctors, clerks, insurance brokers, police people, whatever, uh, all have to adhere to to performance targets. I don't know if they're as, as common now as they were Possibly they're they're starting the power of the statistics model and the performance target is maybe waning in the United States. But, you know, Ireland usually 10, 15 years later catch up with whatever is kind of happening over there and in the UK. But, um, yeah, they're they're pretty ubiquitous, uh, as ubiquitous as the air 
basically, and which is why they kind of generally go unseen. But slight digression, one, one of the most infamous examples of a performance target is um, Robert McNamara was the Secretary of Defense in the United States uh, during the Vietnam War at the behest of one of his technocrats who came up with the idea of applying performance targets to the war. The infamous one was called body count, and that was basically as brutal as and as simple as it sounds. The more body bags full of enemy that the US could produce, the more clear it was that they were winning the war in Vietnam. But what actually happened was that very often the soldiers, they just made it up or they shot civilians. So, you know, it, it, it didn't, it, like there were a lot of body bags coming back to the United States and, or being counted, but it, it didn't actually indicate anything like the US winning. So that's that's the most infamous one. It was a disaster, actually. It lost the US the war. They didn't understand what, what was going on at all. Despite that, these kind of uh, statistical models became ubiquitous anyway, and they are ubiquitous. Now, the other thing about performance targets and this, and this aspect of game theoretical models is that underpinning all of them is the assumption that everybody's doing what advances yourself most. That's what is assumed is the prime motivator of agency in human beings. That's that's capitalism, right? That's what's assumed. But what's kind of happened is that it's rational to do what's in your own interests. But it, this logic has also kind of almost flipped where now rationality, the only rationality is to do what's self-interested. You know, it's become flipped 180 and anything that, that kind of falls outside of that purview of rationality is seen as dismissed or, or seen as weird, basically. So, you know, any kind of act of altruism or anything like that is, doesn't, doesn't fit the models that we're all kind of subjected to. Selfishness is the underlying principle of our institutional lives, basically. Okay. Okay. <laughs> There's another term that's used in your book as well. Could you explain what neoliberalism is and how is game theory linked with neoliberal economics? Basically, neoliberalism is implemented institutionally via these models. I think David Harvey is the foremost academic writer and thinker on, on neoliberalism. I think he actually, he coined the, the term. And if you wanted to check out David Harvey, he's really excellent. And he's an unbelievable writer as well, because his books are quite, there's a great clarity to them, basically, about very complicated concepts that he formulated. But um, anyway, like he basically defines neoliberalism as a thing, as a system that brings all human agency into the purview of free market, basically. So everything you do, every act has to be counted towards or is counted towards free market. That's the idea behind it. So game theory models like performance targets and things like that, they, they bring all of human agency and endeavor into the realm of the, the so-called free market in this way. In more macro terms, the economics of neoliberalism is to pursue the defunding of public institutions and the privatization and, and monetization of absolutely anything that can't be, be nailed down. <laughs> so like, yeah, just, just to give a brief example, I guess the, the, the NHS in the UK is a vestige of more socialist ideas coming out of post-World War II England. And that is constantly under attack from the right in England who are trying to dismantle it. The people of the UK love it because it's so amazing. Uh, so they're having a difficult time trying to dismantle it, but they're trying and they're trying and they're trying anyway. Okay, give us another tune there now. The third one up is a track called Earthly Heaven by a person that I think I'm not stretching it too far to say is actually a pal of mine. Um, and that is Rachel Grimes. And she was 
in a band in the 1990s called The Rachels and it wasn't it, they were named after something else not her she was just a band member so that's just a coincidence but um, she was in a band called The Rachels and they were a mixture of sort of like a instrumental almost post-punky kind of musicians mixed with chamber musicians and so it was kind of a fusion of like the, the two things I guess it was kind of like you know they were kind of lumped in with post-rock I guess so it was like that kind of detuned guitar and really beautiful piano and and string stuff. So I actually had the pleasure of of putting on a gig for her. I think it was 2009. The funny part of that is that it was on in Jury's Hotel in a conference room because uh, it was supposed to be on the Triscoll, but the Triscoll was being refurbished into what it is now at the time. And so they just hired out uh, a room there. So I got to see Rachel Grimes or hear Rachel Grimes in a conference room. I was there when she was rehearsing and I was I was at the other end of the room just looking out the window over the over the river and uh, she played a piece called Honeysuckle Sweet I think and it's like three three movements it's from one of the the Rachel's albums actually and it kind of stretches her technical ability to the limit and it's it's actually played in a harpsichord on the album but uh, I was there in in the room anyway while she was belting that out so she was a lovely person and I took her back to my cold windy flat on Douglas Street after and made her some kind of curry and she was kind enough to say that it was nice and um, so yeah she's really sound I also made her cry and uh, maybe that's another story for story for another day <laughs> it was a total accident but anyway so yeah Rachel's lovely and she's like one of the most talented musicians I've ever I've ever seen or heard to be honest and uh, this is a gorgeous song Thank you. 
That was Early Heaven by Rachel Grimes and that was picked today by my guest Niall Heffernan. Niall is the author of the book In the Shadow of the Bomb and we were discussing that today and other things. So Niall, the full title of your book is In the Shadow of the Bomb. The Legacy of the Cold War, In Dr. Strangelove, Endzone, Crash and The Wire. The full title for Stanley Kubrick's movie is Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. Dr. Strangelove, released in 1964, satirizes the Cold War, which we just spoke about, and the fears of a nuclear conflict between the Soviet Union and the United States. Endzone, written by Don DeLillo in 1972, is a novel whose protagonist is a football player in Texas. He becomes increasingly obsessed by the threats of nuclear war, and he begins to hear his teammates discussing match tactics in the same terms generals may discuss global conflict. Crash by J.G. Ballard, written in 1973, a Revolting little book is less obvious in the way it deals with these Cold War themes. The book is about a man who finds himself drawn with increasing erotic intensity to the mangled wreckage of car crashes. The Wire is a TV show that ran for five seasons, airing first in 2002 and finishing in 2008. One could suggest that The Wire depicts American society fallout from the reality of game theory and neoliberal economy. So, the Cold War and nuclear fallout has been the subject of many films and books and TV shows. For instance, the 1984 British-Australian apocalyptic war drama Threads, or Graham Greene's Our Man in Havana, or the animated feature When the Wind Blows. So can you explain why you chose the text you chose for your book? Uh, in terms of Crash, maybe I strayed too far from decency, or the point, you know, <laughs> when I went to Crash. Uh, I guess the, the, the true answer is that uh, I, I wrote about it because I really, really enjoyed it at the time. I know that makes me sound like a sicko, but I, I loved it in terms of, like, I hadn't read anything like it before, and I suppose it did fit in terms of depicting objectification and pornification of the body and kind of psychopathic dehumanization and stuff like that and like the, the the attempt to try to be a person in the face of you know the the looming violence of the, of nuclear war and everything else and you know autogeddon as ballard called it you know and i was preparing for this show i read endzone and crash but obviously you know strange love endzone and the wire i could totally see but crash was definitely not as obvious to me why you might have picked it. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, there was a lot in it as well which chimed with me at the time with regard to post-nuclear stuff, I suppose. And, and I guess it was almost impossible to find stuff which directly related to game theory in a way that was, you know, interesting. Like, I'm sure there are texts which deal with game theory or the effects of it, but uh, I didn't find them at the time. And... and I thought that maybe just stepping away from it a little bit anyway wouldn't be such a bad thing. Or maybe I was just being lazy. <laughs> <laughs> you represent the 60s with uh, Dr. Strangelove and the 70s with both Endzone and Crash. And you skip the 80s and 90s to jump to the noughties with The Wire. You do, however, touch briefly on the 80s and 90s with Oliver Stone's 1987 film Wall Street and Brett Easton Ellis's 1991 movie American Psycho by describing them as critical fiction responses to the brutality of the Reagan years. What impact did Reagan's two terms have on the acceleration of the capitalist maxim greed is good? And do you think The Wire is a depiction of the direct results that Reagan's administration had on the American working class? Yeah, I, I do indeed. The second season when McNulty is on a boat where he's looking at, I think it's called, the factory's called Bethlehem Steel, which is obviously a real steel mill in, in Baltimore. And he's talking about his father being laid off from the job in the 80s. And that's very much a direct uh, reference to what were mass layoffs in industrial working class blue collar uh, work around the United States in the 80s, which was direct result of Reagan's pursuit of, of neoliberal economics, which is at the time shutting down working class industries and asset stripping them, basically, and, and flogging them off on the stock exchange 
like gutting everything. I don't know if the stats in front of me. There's obviously there's, that's been written about a lot anyway. But, you know, millions of jobs basically were axed uh, in the United States in the 80s and, you know, have never been replaced, basically. Mm. Apart from the jobs themselves being taken away, I suppose it did kind of break labor power uh, in the United States as well to, to a pretty big extent. Although it seems like it might be making a little comeback. That's why you wrote about The Wire, essentially, is it? Um, the reason, the thing that really hooked me in wasn't that exactly. It was the fact that I was really blown away by the fact that all the institutions that are depicted in The Wire in the first season, that the police department in Baltimore, what it was criticising was the fact that the police had performance targets that they had to fulfil. And that re- that generally involved, as they put it, like catching touts selling like $20 worth of heroin and cracking their heads, throwing them in the back of the van and taking them down, booking them, whatever. And that was that was the meat and drink of the so-called war on drugs. It was just a stats fulfilling exercise, basically, but it had less than zero effect on the quality of life or the even the war on drugs or whatever you want to call it in the United States. It had no effect. It didn't stop anything. It was completely and utterly ineffective. And what the first season shows is that the cops are bemoaning a previous time when they would actually go and try to communicate with the people living in the places where they were policing and that 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 communication was much more effective uh, police strategy than just, you know, punching the the head off a 14-year-old and throwing him in the back of a van when, you know, the only viable industry for a city like Baltimore even was, or the only source of employment, if you want to put it like that, was the drug trade. Um, you know, you're just victimising pe- a certain colour person, generally. And and for what? Like, the cops are questioning the point of the statistics targets. What it essentially boils down to is that, that there's a, the, the appearance of efficiency. But generally, what what if, you know, they're looking at the mayor's office and the budget and all of that kind of stuff, and the budget is always tight, the the police never get the resources that they need really to do anything. And it's all a matter of spending the least amount of money possible, penny pinching, maximizing efficiency, being not profitable. I mean, the police force in the United States hasn't been privatized yet. Not fully, anyway. Maybe they could, they never can privatize the police force, but they can make it adhere to the logic of the free market as much as they possibly can, and that's what it is. And and you can, you know, the effect was juking the stats, which is basically like when I talked about the body count earlier, when the Vietnamese, when the the American soldiers are shooting civilians, or or juking the stats, as it's called in the wire, in different ways, like. There's there's myriad ways you can do stats as a as a police person to make it look like you're doing you're doing a great job, mm-hmm. but the reality was not the the opposite of that basically. So that's another aspect of those kinds of models, so those kind of like free market, the free market logic being applied to all sorts of institutions, is that it's bullshit. What's important is the appearance of of something being effective, not the actual, not something being actually effective. It's what the market wants. It wants the least amount of expenditure, you know, and and all the other stuff, the human tragedy that's the byproduct of that is kind of irrelevant, really. Was the Cold War 
the birth of capitalism or was it always there but this accelerated it? Or? Yeah, no, it was always there. That might be a naive question now. But no, no, not at all because, no, I mean, you're asking questions that I kind of had to like go through myself, you know, and, and kind of try and dig into a little bit more. And really, to be honest, I don't want to posit what I said in the book is as the absolute, there is no absolute truth anyway, but as, a, as you know, unassailably correct or whatever. But that's my feeling is that it kind of codified and solidified capitalism as as kind of an unencumbered force, basically, yeah. But like, you know, this is obviously, it's never that simple. There was a lot of other things going on. I mean, neoliberalism kind of started with, you could say, with a guy called Friedrich von Hayek, who was, um, he was an Austrian economist, and he talked about something called a self-directing automatic system, which is basically uh, another way of saying, let the market do whatever it wants, or, you know, maybe even Adam Smith's, like, the, the hidden hand of the market or whatever. But, like, you know, so he was a, an evangelist for free marketism back in the 40s, he was mostly, it was a kind of dense academia. Not many people really listened to him. People thought that was batshit, basically, especially in the aftermath of World War II. Socialism was needed <laughs> to, 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 to resurrect the world out of the fucking rubble. But then, you know, most people thought that letting the market do what it wanted to was just, you know, bats, like not the right thing to do at all. But von Hayek did have disciples. He had a disciple in Milton Friedman. If you ever read Naomi Klein's book, The Shock Doctrine, for example, as she talks about Milton Friedman at length, and he's he was a free market evangelist, basically, who did all of his experiments with neo, neoliberal economics in um, Latin America. And what Klein talks about in the book is the fact that, for example, in Chile, they tried to enforce this kind of like free market economy and it didn't work it ended in disaster and they had to implement it by violence brutally basically with the installation of pinochet and all that kind of stuff so a lot of the countries a few of the countries in latin america were guinea pigs for the early uh, neoliberal kind of experiments but yeah i suppose what i kind of say in the book whether i'm right or wrong i don't know obviously maybe it's not possible to prove it but i think that because the the Cold War was kind of framed as this giant battle of good versus evil, uh, and good won, obviously, that um, that good was the American way of God and freedom and democracy and capitalism. And like once once the big, like the big monster was defeated, that was it. Like there was, you know, Francis Fukuyama's infamous essay at the end of history is that like now we're, you know, utopia is going to dawn. Because, like, with capitalism, <laughs> let's all party capitalist style, like, in our in our capitalist utopias, or whatever. I don't know what the hell he was talking about. But anyway, that's the idea. That I think that, like, once that ideological barrier was crossed or, or, or vanquished or whatever, I think capitalism sort of became unstoppable, I guess. I like my
accepting only fresh brine You can get another drop of this, yeah you wish Mutilated lips give a kiss on the wrist Of the worm-like tips of tentacles expanding in my mind I'm fine accepting only fresh brine You can get another drop of this, yeah you wish Laughing to living Niall, I have one more question about your book. One more direct question about your book. Um, some might say the shadow of the bomb has been cast again with the conflict in Ukraine, as it can be argued that it is a proxy war between America and Russia. The end of Christopher Nolan's recent blockbuster Oppenheimer about the father of the atomic bomb could be interpreted as a nod to the fact that there is a proxy war between the two Cold War superpowers. Again, as nuclear threats have been mentioned, neoliberal or capitalist policies are attributed to the fact that climate change is more apparent than ever and fundamental issues such as housing, healthcare, etc. can only be described as an emergency. If you were writing your book today, do you think you would change anything given these issues that have presented themselves in the past 10 years? Yeah, I, I would... I would maybe try to. I don't know if it's possible to rewrite the book. For example, if I was going to rewrite it, I wouldn't be able to rewrite it, I don't think. But I'd probably take a stab at writing a different book that's kind of saying maybe similar things (laughs) or the same thing um, in a more accessible way, I guess. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, all of those things. Firstly, I don't really know about the Ukraine war. I don't know enough about it really to, to comment on it, I think. Uh, maybe that's kind of part of the problem with with the world is that people feel 
that they are you know they they are have an expertise on things they don't know what you know and they don't know what you're talking about but anyway so i wouldn't really want to comment on it but um the the certainly yeah the, the it it it's very possible given the history of the united states especially which is the, the the history that i'm kind of more familiar with that that it could be a proxy war and that this these kinds of things are looming again that that the threat of nuclear war is looming again i don't know i mean it's stating the obvious to say that nobody, even the, the crazy people, want a nuclear annihilation to happen, you know. Um, so, but that doesn't mean that it won't, obviously, but I guess you would you would have to assume that it's it's unlikely, I guess. And that's not that's not me being like massively optimistic. It's just I think that, that that's probably unlikely. I think the I think the more dangerous uh, aspect of what I'm talking about is probably the environmental collapse that we're in the midst of. Yeah, like if I was if I was going to rewrite the book, for example, I would try to tie in those issues like housing, health care and all those other like, I mean, you could close your eyes and pick a problem right now. And, you know, that are happening in, in, in Irish society and arguably Ireland is kind of getting away with things a little bit in in that things are not quite as harsh as they are in other countries like in the UK or the United States um, if you're looking at it from an overall perspective but still there are a lot of the same kind of problems are common among capitalist countries across the western world so maybe maybe there's a little bit of a unique Irishness to some of the problems all right and <laughs> our, our post-colonial past and the fact that we can't um, we can't seem to get over that we, we have to recapitulate the brutalization that the English visited on us you know by by kind of copying them with landlordism and things like that but um yeah like it can all it can all be traced back to to neoliberal economics and to the, the, the systems that implement that, I guess. In Ireland, we're kind of, we're like I said, we're kind of following on. We, we've inherited those kinds of ideologies and, and systems from the United States. Like that's what, that's one of the consequences of them winning, uh, I put in, in air quotations, winning the Cold War was that they dictate terms to everybody else and, and uh, like the rest of the countries go along with it. Uh, you asked about Reagan like a while ago. I mean, Thatcher implemented very similar uh, brutal uh, economics in the in the UK in the eighties, and and they're on a similar trajectory as well now, into into the fucking pit of doom as their trajectory by the looks of it sometimes. But anyway, um, but yeah, like all of it can be traced back to to that kind of stuff. I, I mean, yeah, I mean. We have adopted a very mean and ideologically mean and narrow kind of economics, basically. And like whatever problem you pick in Irish society, you can basically trace back to a kind of a, this brutal kind of form of economics. It's very unkind and anti social kind of economics basically okay let's step away from the doom ah <laughs> <laughs> oh, no i was just getting into it i know yeah you were just getting the flow on as well yeah um so how did it feel when you finished the book it must have taken a lot out of you to get it over the line or did it yeah i mean it it drags the arse out of it for 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 ages after does mm. rewrites and there's things like that my lovely supervisors alan and gwenda just tortured me coming towards the end of writing the, the phd thesis <laughs> 
and uh, it was torture with uh, the best intentions obviously I just need to clarify that just in case either of them are listening or might listen or anybody else who knows them uh, so they made me rewrite it and they, they were you know they said this doesn't work and this doesn't work so was, you know that was kind of more the torture of it and like I said the actual publisher uh, which is McFarland, is a little uh, kind of publishing company in North Carolina, I think. They didn't say jack shit to me. I tried to make it more accessible to the lay reader, basically. Going back to the book this week, when you asked me to uh, to come on, parts of it kind of made me cringe to my marrow, you know. Uh, and <laughs> one, one of the things is that it's, it, was, it was originally supposed to be an, ac- an academic piece of writing, but I, I've, you know, there... <sighs> There's, there's an endless amount of academic stuff that's never going to actually see the light of day or, or ever be of any use to the real world, let's be honest about it, right? And I, I would prefer if I could actually write a book or write the book in a, such a way as that people would read it and enjoy it. <laughs> um, you know, make it more, not like I'm not talking about dumbing it down or anything. I'm, ta- I'm like it's quite the opposite, really, because it, to make something that's kind of complex ideas and make them accessible is the hardest thing to do. Like obviously, yeah. that's why you can only admire people who are able to do that. And one of the ways to do that is is with stories, like with a narrative. There's no real narrative to the book. You know, you can't like it doesn't pull people in. You know, to and give some people uh, something to identify with. That's not like because I think that, you know, millions of people would read it or anything, but just because it's, you know, I want to, I don't want, (laughs) I don't want it to be elitist or whatever, but like, you know. Yeah, but it's not because it's an academic book, right? That's the way I've dealt with your book. I read the introduction and then I didn't go near it for a while. And then I read Crash and then I read your bits on Crash. It was all very, very accessible, you know, but what it is like an academic book, it's really dense. If you were looking for specific opinion on Endzone, say, it's a great book to go to. Are you saying that you'd like to kind of make it a little bit more linear in that sense? Yeah, um, well, that's well, thanks for that. Um, that's that's good to hear. Maybe that's kind of one of the reasons why I chose Crash as well, is that like, you know, you can kind of maybe have them as standalone kind of chapters. I don't know, really, to be honest, I, um, like, I guess what it, <laughs> What I'm trying to say is, I suppose that maybe maybe that book is gone and it can't be. It's now in the ether and it just is what it is. But like I suppose when you're asking me about how, like how certain things in the book are relevant, the writing is is not great. Like the writing, the way it's written isn't great as far as I'm concerned. But I do agree with the themes of the book. I didn't read it and go, "What is this crap?" Like you know, what's this bullshit? I do agree with it. I think it's actually more relevant than than ever, even than it was like ten years ago or whatever. So it'd be nice to write about it in such a way as to make it accessible, like, but not not necessarily using those texts. Maybe I don't know. Maybe a novel is is the way to go. You know, I'll just take a career break. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> sounds good. Give us another tune there now. The next one up is Glass Museum. That is Tortoise from their 1996 album. Uh, millions now living will never die and it this track covers a couple of bases because um it was written by a musician called david pahu who also played in slint and his solo project papa m are, are also an all-time favorite so i remember at the time thinking what if a band merged kind of string instruments with electronic instruments 
you know, wouldn't that be neat or whatever I was thinking at the time. And then my, my mate Paddy came back from Chicago with a cassette of the most kind of futuristic and perfect, perfect music I'd ever clapped my ears on. And that was this album. He had a, like a battered old cassette copy of it. Paddy wasn't the, the biggest music lover, but this album is a gift that's still, that's still given 25 years on. It's a masterpiece. And it's kind of made a little bit sad, sadder for me because Paddy actually passed away a couple of years ago from cancer. He was, he was a bit of a trailblazer and he travelled a lot and he came back with a treasure, you know, and he didn't really, I don't think he really realised <laughs> that it was a treasure. He's just like, take this, take this cassette, you might like it. Uh, so yeah, it's an absolute masterpiece of a song. It's almost, it's almost perfect. So when your publishing company, McFarland, agreed to publish it, was it a strange feeling that your book would be out in the world? Were you precious about that at all?
That was Glass Museum and that was picked by my guest today, Niall Heffernan. Niall is the author of the book In the Shadow of the Bomb. He's also a long-standing host of the radio show Cosmosis, which we're going to talk about now, Niall. So you've been hosting your radio show Cosmosis for 10 years. When you started it, did you think you'd still be going all these years later? Uh, I did not. I just took a chance on doing a radio show in UCC radio when I was kind of towards the end of the, the PhD and didn't know what was going to come of it really. I kind of had a vague idea just kind of trying to chart the lesser tunes or the tunes that never made it or whatever because like there's a canon in music as much as there is in literature and stuff that falls outside of that is kind of obviously there's loads of people who like alternative music and YouTube has put this at people's fingertips really like to kind of go and seek out little treasures basically that never really made it or whatever. Um, so that was kind of the idea. The name Cosmosis, by the way, just just to clarify, there's been a few psychedelic uh, music festivals called Cosmosis in England since then, and there's uh, there's about forty thousand radio shows called Cosmosis on on Mixcloud or whatever. <laughs> it's Cozy Fanny Tutty from Throbbing Gristle. It was her first moniker. That's what she called herself. She called herself Cosmosis. And when I was scrabbling around looking for a name for the radio show, I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. It's like Osmosis, but it's in the cosmos or whatever. So, yeah. So I went with that. I was brutal with, you know, speaking into the microphone, which hasn't really changed much, obviously. Didn't really know what I was doing. And, you know, you're kind of when you're when you're speaking into a microphone in the studio, uh, you don't know who you're talking to. Um, so I didn't really know if anyone was listening. People kind of started saying, oh, yeah, listen to the radio there. It was good. Yeah. Um, so then... Um, I asked Roz, Rosalind Steer and Elaine Howley to, if because I, I think I just got very busy with stuff and I couldn't commit to doing it every week. So I asked them, would they give me give me a hand? And they did. And we were kind of rotating every week then like that. And that's that was that was great. I didn't give them any remit or anything like that. You know, I just let them let them off and play whatever they wanted, and like it was amazing. And that was like really cool, kind of listening to the stuff that they were playing as well, and absolutely kind of blown it out of the park. So that was good fun, and we kind of did the odd show where it was the three of us together as well, which is a bit of crack. So around that time, Dublin Digital Radio was starting up. We hit them up. Well, Elaine, Elaine hit them up and asked them about a slot. And so we've got a, a dusty corner of Dublin Digital Radio twice a month. <laughs> yeah. So it's there now. But um, yeah, so it's uh, I just it's another thing where, uh, you know, I looked back through old, old MP3 files uh, and they go back to 2013 because I wasn't actually keeping I wasn't keeping score. Yeah. But it's yeah, 10 years mad. Gives a tune for Cosmosis there. The next one up is Slip, which is Autechre. I was talking about Tortoise and kind of trying to, to meld electronic music and, and with traditional instruments. But Autechre was the first uh, proper kind of electronic band that I listened to and loved. And shout out to Richie for that one uh, as a guy I shared a room with in Galway back when, yeah. Well, sharing a room is kind of something you do again, isn't it? <laughs> But anyway, it wasn't weird. It seemed normal at the time. But anyway, he he <laughs> he had some great music, and so Autechre are still going strong. They've long since abandoned melody. This album, I think it's '94, possibly called Amber. It's their their seminal album. It's a beautiful melody, and uh, yeah, it's it's a great one.
Welcome back. You just heard a track called Slip by Autecker from their uh, seminal LP Amber. Now, let's talk a little bit more about Cosmosis because um, I've been doing this radio show for seven or eight months now. Uh, so 10 years really does seem like a long time. What does Cosmosis mean to you now after 10 years? After 10 years, it's uh, it's a massive yoke around my neck and I hate it. No, um, it's totally fine. <laughs> Just to clarify, Elaine is still taking the, the alternate week. So we're doing, we have two shows a month. She does one show and I do the other. So I'm doing one show a month and she's doing one show a month. But I'm very bad at remembering when it's my turn to make a show. And quite a few times I've realized on a Wednesday, the day before, like, oh, balls, I have to make a radio show very quickly. Yeah, <laughs> uh, That's happened quite a few times, I'll be honest. Even if I'm tired and I want to go to sleep or whatever and I have to stay up and make it, I still... I still end up enjoying it anyway. So it's just like, it's it's just a way to, to kind of communicate with people, I suppose. That's all it is. I mean, I don't know if it's, if many people listen to it, it's really hard to tell. Like people, I think more people listen to it when it was on uh, campus radio, or at least I kind of got more feedback about it when it was on, when it was on campus radio. But, you know, when I was like shouting on earlier about like finding, finding rare hidden gems and stuff like that, I mean, there's so much on Dublin Digital Radio, <laughs> that it's it's probably lost in in the sauce of of goodness, basically, like because there's so many brilliant shows on it. Like some of it's not not necessarily to everybody's taste, but some of it is like re, you know people I know, like Mickey Dernan and Cork's own Jeremy Murphy and people like that. Who Jeremy and Mickey both have tens of thousands of records, like you know just ludicrous amounts of knowledge and stuff like that, who have great radio shows on it. It's community radio, like it's it's not, as you know yourself, like it's, um, it's a hobby. I got a text message from a friend yesterday who said that she listened to one of the shows on her way home in driving through a storm and it helped her be calm. So like, yeah, that's lovely. Like, you know, yeah. That's really nice. That's great. Yeah, yeah. Give us another tune there now. Okay, the next one up is Faust with Giggy Smile. This one also comes from the Galway Times. In Indiana Jones, when a dusty a dusty vault opens and there's treasure inside, it's like, it, except it was, well, not that there's treasure inside my brain, but it, some, it, it unlocked something when I listened to Faust's first anyway. And they're not American or British, they're a German band and um, coming from post-World War II, totally antithetical to everything that the previous generation of Germans, unfortunately, came to, came to represent or whatever. They represented freedom and anarchy and all that kind of stuff and being weird and being funny, just, you know, being silly, all of that stuff. The album is called Faust, Faust 4. I think they went to a farmhouse and recorded for six months while possibly taking an awful lot of hallucinogenic drugs and like letting it all go. This uh, song is a, it's actually a lovely kind of straightforward tune by them, but there's something weird and different and kind of otherworldly about it as well.
You're you're asking me about um, about doing the Cosmosis show for ten years. Obviously, when you when you got in touch with me and you sent on what you wanted to cover and stuff like that, it it struck me that you've obviously put a lot of research into it and you've read Endzone and Crash. So, like, yeah, you, like you're doing a lot of research. Is my point? Like, uh, how are you finding that? Well, it started as the same reason I'd say you started Cosmosis. I wanted to play um, or local alternative music you know mm-hmm. and I did that for I think four weeks I don't have my own house and I came across Frank O'Connor from Derelict Ireland and I thought you know what I'll ask him I'll ask him does he want to come on the show yeah and he was like the first person I asked and he was the first he said yes straight away and I asked him look will you play some music around the teams of Derelict Ireland and he, and he really enjoyed picking out that and then I thought okay so this is my first time ever interviewing anyone I didn't think about it at all and then it kind of went really well and I found it hard and I thought well this is challenging so if this is challenging, then just keep doing it because that's where you're going to learn something. So I just thought, well, like I'm not really on the scene or in the scene or not to be playing music every week. And that's it. I just thought, well, I'll try and do the interviews, you know. Yeah. Then when you ask somebody on, you you have to do your research. Like, 
you know what I mean? You're backing yourself into a corner, yeah. You kind of are, but that's, I think that's, that's how I work. I work well under pressure, you know what I mean? But in that sense, then it's become something that I never thought it would be. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. And you get to hear other people's music and some people surprise you and, you know, yeah. it's, it's great that way. Yeah, yeah. So, I, and honestly, like as well, after having a child, community has become really important to me. I just want to use the show as a way of, you know, hearing about people in the community and putting it out there because you know um, Katrina Toomey I never spoke to her I like, wanted to get her story I know she'd been to Ukraine all that kind of stuff I'm a big radio fan so you'd hear I've listened to B- BBC Six and I thought well, it wouldn't be great if you could get like people in your community on and play music that they like you know what I mean so it's about hearing what it's about hearing their music as well you know yeah that's uh, yeah that's amazing I mean yeah I, I mean I was talking earlier about like kind of in terms of choosing certain texts and stuff like that and my my MO was the the path of least resistance and obviously <laughs> um, with in some situations because uh, I'm a lazy bastard uh, in a lot of ways but then yeah like I mean you're right forcing yourself backing yourself into a corner is probably how you actually get anything done yeah <laughs> so, so just to say thanks a million for for asking me on and like when i think about the marvelous human beings like virginia like frank o'connor like mary crilly and people like that like you know just absolutely amazing people so yeah. you're, you don't have to go far i'm not including myself in that but like you don't have to go far to find really amazing people doing amazing things like you know like all the all the joking about doom aside uh like in terms of like capitalism being on its last legs and you know musk and bezos and zuckerberg all you know going to live in the moon or whatever you know and and everything kind of getting crazier and kind of having a feeling of end times which which it it does uh at times but then you know people like virginia for example She's doing the soil project and things like that, which are, you know, that they're the kind of people who actually, <laughs> you look at them and go, maybe we're not fucked. Yeah, absolutely. When I was interviewing her, I was just so happy that there was people like her in the community, you know? Yeah. Katrina Toomey, she's keeping Cor- the fabric of Cork together for like, you know. I did the interview with her. I, I think I said it to her as well. Like, I'm not, I'm not religious at all, but some people are saints. I think we all know yeah. somebody who's a saint. I volunteered a morning and it's insane. It's insane the amount of people that she feeds. Yeah. It's it's relentless. I know. She doesn't get a cent from the government. No, you no. Know? She's feeding like deliveries. Like it's not homeless people. It's everybody. It's the working poor. I mean, I know this because in my previous uh, employment, I was an English language teacher and quite a lot of the students relied on penny dinners. Well, and I remember the first time one of the students said it to me, I nearly fell off the chair, like, but um, that's that's the reality. Yeah, like I said, the working poor, not not people who have like fallen off the la- the lowest rung of the ladder, uh, people who are actually keeping the city turning over, <laughs> the ones that need this help. That need free meals. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, even like, uh, like not, not to, you know, go back into negativity, but like uh, the Simon community and the other homeless uh, organizations are not funded by the government either. No. Yep. And uh, St. Vincent de Paul. Yeah. Who are immense. Yeah. As well, you know. Yeah, yeah. Give us another tune there now. <laughs> All right. Broadcast. And this is almost too much and too personal, too emotional. Uh, so Trish Keenan was the daughter of Irish immigrants in, in Brummie, in Birmingham, in the flats in Birmingham. And uh, she is dead, I think, 11, 12 years. She died of pneumonia, tragically. 
I think it was a, a combination of pneumonia and the bird flu at the time when they were touring in Australia. I never met her, but I, I know people who met her. She was uh, tough as nails and also very kind and sweet. A really great band. And I think that loads of people have come to appreciate them now subsequently since her death, which is kind of what usually happens, unfortunately. But I think people are still... The, the greatness of the band is still to be fully realised, I think, by people. So, yeah, this is a track called Winter Now. There's a version of it on YouTube, I think it's for Canadian TV, where she's given it absolute socks. And it made me cry about the first 15 times I watched it. Every time I watched it, I started crying. So there's something about it, it just kills me. But, uh, yeah, great track.
That was Winter Now by Broadcast and that was picked by my guest today, Niall Heffernan. Niall, we've come to the end. Thanks a million for coming on. Yeah, that was um, that was really great. That was that was good fun. Thanks um, thanks for asking me. Anything in the pipeline? Any more DJ slots coming up? No, that's that's kind of um, that that's dried up. I don't know what's going on there. Um, Albert is as usually he's he's the other ping ponger. Uh, he's the hype man, you know. He's he's <laughs> he's the front man in the operation, and he usually people usually go to Albert for to ask him. Uh, about all things music, basically, um, and people usually would come to him and ask him, "Does he want to? Does he want to play some records?" And then he might ask me. Um, but uh, yeah, it hasn't happened in a while, which is a pity because it's really good fun. Gigs were scarce, like ten in the ground there for a long time. But I think uh, it's coming back around again. You know, the ping pong stuff was good at the time. It was in the middle of the Celtic Tiger, whatever you want to call it, or near the end of the Celtic Tiger. And touring bands that were kind of like middle-sized touring bands uh, could actually afford to like leave the United States and leave the UK and end up in, in places like Cork. And, you know, the, they didn't have prohibitive uh, visa issues or, or expenses or any of that kind of stuff. So we kind of just got lucky with some of that stuff. Um, and we were able to bring over loads of bands. You know, it was a kind of a it was a hodgepodge of bands. Really, it was kind of cool to be able to do that. Anyway, mm. but um, you know, since then, like obviously, like this, you know, it's 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 extremely hard. Like Cork, the Cork music scene has has survived uh, with DIY, yeah. and and there's kind of a there's been an amazing byproduct byproduct from that as well because you know the, it was so expensive and the touring bands coming to Cork kind of dried up for a long time and then I guess when Jimmy took over the Triscoll at the record shop and, and the cafe a kind of a DIY scene kind of struck up kind of based there um, and loads of bands kind of struck up out of that as well and there's, there's some now like now that seems like Irish music uh, alternative music is kind of in a bit of an a revival it's on a real upward string upward swing isn't it like there's yeah. there's loads of really good stuff out there now that that wasn't there 10 years ago really that's another positive that came out of a crock of shite <laughs> <So>. <laughs> okay uh, let's hear your last tune for the day all right uh so the last one is john cage bubblegum do i do i have a spiel with it i'm not sure it's stereolab i guess they don't really need any any introduction but anyway the stereolab have been have been an ever present in my life uh, since as a teenager as well since my, my neighbor Pete Fraz Murray gave me a compilation tape. Uh, I don't think I appreciated it at the time because, again, I was in my hairy, cranky Nirvana phase. But uh, obviously, I've, it's they, like I said, uh, they've been with me ever since. So yeah, Stereolab, it's a, a belter of a tune called John Cage Bubblegum. Mm-hmm.